Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is writer, producer, and director Christine Yu. Christine joins me to talk about her documentary, 26.2 to Life, which brings viewers to San Quentin State Prison to watch prisoners train for a marathon that's run inside the prison walls. Here's the film's trailer. Listen up, everybody. Six-minute run. I want you to go all out. Three minutes down. Push it hard. Three to go. Five seconds left. 78 marathons, 38 ultra marathons. If you look at statistics, it's less than 1% of the population has ever finished a marathon. My goal is to run under three hours, maybe qualify for Boston. Here, be the first one to do that. 2014, I completed my first half marathon. This year, I'm determined to finish the 026. I just hope you guys are determined to stay the 07 hours with me. You know <laughs> 105 laps around this track. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Even some of the melees and the, and the riots in here had nothing on them how I felt after that marathon. I, I really didn't know what to expect, so when I went over, I just took the attitude that, hey, these guys are runners. Hey, how you doing? How's your ankle? Bring your mud shoes? <laughs> Hey, Cedric, can you get your ankle healed? My ankle's still a little tender, but I'll... And she's like, marry me. I was like, Marion, I'm probably never coming home. When I was growing up, I never thought I would ever end up in prison. Never ever thought about even coming to prison. And one day, uh, after working and drinking, I saw her while she was pregnant and she had to go have a C-section. The baby ended up dying 28 days later of an infection. I said, I deserve to die. I deserve to be in prison for life. Since he died, now I'm paying for it. There's no reason that he's in there for as long as he is. That's all his choice. I can understand the laws of the laws, but I have the right to be mad at my dad. No one's gonna take that from me. I know he feels sorry, but tell me then. Cause I share my feelings, why can't a grown man share his? To his son. I just feel like I am my brother's keeper. That uh, if, if he needs help, I'm gonna try to help him. And uh, I, I feel like these guys over there, they need help. And uh, they appreciate whatever help they get. So. 2053 is my EPRD, earliest possible release date. I'll be 86 years old, but if I keep running, I'll be all right. <laughs> you gotta stay positive. As soon as I got out the hole, I ran straight down to the lower yard and looked for whoever's on the thousand miles still. I was like, can I get in? Because I want to run, I want to run, I want to run. I got love for my brother, but we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other. We gotta start making change. I recognized a while ago that my voice is free. I can reach the world with the words. 
He's not just changing this way of thinking so that when he can get out, he can be better next time. There probably is no getting out. So he's just changing the way he's thinking to make him better. All right, everybody that's running, start lining up. It's game time. Three, two, one, go. He had his bypass last Thursday, and he came in here Friday morning to work out with us. I was shocked. It's a community now. If you can't live in a community in here, you can't live in a community out there. Why should they let me out? Because I've changed. The film has been enthusiastically received at numerous film festivals across the country, winning the Audience Award at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and the Seattle International Film Festival. It will be featured at the Woods Hole Film Festival, held in Falmouth, Massachusetts, from July 29th to August 13th. Additionally, the film will be opening in theaters in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, and Seattle on September 22nd, followed by a 48-hour nationwide virtual premiere from September 29th to October 1st. Ticketing information for that event can be found in the episode notes of this podcast. In addition to directing 26 to Life, Christine is the co-executive producer of The Winning Spirit. Her work has also appeared on National Geographic, The History Channel, and Oxygen. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And now on to my conversation with Christine Yu. Hello, Christine Yu. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. So, Christine, you are the producer and the director of a documentary called 26.2 to Life. What's the synopsis of that film? 26.2 to Life explores the transformative power of San Quentin State Prison's Thousand Mile Club, which is a running club inside the prison that is organized by a group of volunteer elite marathoners who come in throughout the year and they train with a group of incarcerated runners. Every year they build up to run a marathon that takes place entirely inside the prison, 105 very dizzying laps. <laughs> yeah, very dizzying laps in what's described as almost more of an obstacle course uh, or an endurance race than than a marathon, given the uh, the topography of of the course such as it is inside the prison inside the prison walls and frankly what all the non-runners are doing at the time that this marathon is going on so how did you find out about the 1000 mile club and what about that that whole activity sparked your interest as a storyteller as a filmmaker 
Uh, in mid 2016, I actually woke up one morning to look at my Apple news feed on my iPhone and I saw a GQ magazine article that said inside the San Quentin prison marathon, I was incredibly intrigued. And it was just one of those moments that when I finished the article, I knew somehow I had to make a film about this. Uh, originally, I was planning to make a narrative piece because uh, that had been more of my background. Uh, but I contacted the coach, uh, found out about, um, uh, you know, he he gave me got me permission to go inside the prison. And when I started researching, I uh, observed a half marathon event, talking to a lot of the guys there, talking to the coaches. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, couldn't believe what I was seeing and decided that this story would be best served if, you know, I got out of the way, essentially and let these men tell their stories for themselves. I also, though, uh, have a friend or who was wrongfully accused and incarcerated, uh, convicted and sentenced to 271 years in California State Prison uh, over 20 years ago. And he was also Korean-American or is also Korean-American. And uh, so that certainly impacted my worldview. This relationship with the, with this friend of yours, how did it expose you to the realities of prison living that you may not have been aware of before? Certainly the controlled um, type of um, uh, relations and, uh, you know, very limited uh, type of interactions. Uh, but to be honest, I really did not have a good grasp of what these guys really go through on a daily basis until I became exposed to the Thousand Mile Club. Uh, During the filming, I gained sort of unprecedented access into the prison. And so that really allowed me to observe daily life. So we, I went in there with my team as often as I could with my associate producer. Um, And so we went in there almost on a weekly basis during the time of, you know, researching and production to to really to observe without cameras rolling and to get to know and understand what life looks like inside the prison. So the the head coach, if that's the right term, Frank Ruona, am I pronouncing his name? Rona, yes, right? Rona. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of heads up the 1000 mile club in terms of the um, the other volunteer coaches. And there and there's a good handful of them who are who are there with him. Uh, talk about an elite athlete himself. What did you come to learn about him and his motivations? Uh, he has this really simple and yet beautiful line toward the end of the film where he says, I am my brother's keeper. And he's not grandiose about it, you know, rather humble about it. And yet talk about walking the walk. That is Frank. You know, Frank, I have learned a tremendous amount from being in his presence. Uh, He is a man that leads with kindness, is a an inclusivity. He is a man of very few words, but absolutely driven by his passion for running. He is a running evangelist um, and he's also very religious, um, not in a, you know, evangelical type of way, but I think deeply religious. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he is somebody that it's not his running pedigree that won over the men in the club. This is a man who shows up 
rain, sleet, or shine when in, especially in the beginning years of the club, it started in 2005, Mm -hmm. uh, there weren't a lot of members. Sometimes there would only be one member that showed up, but this is a man that's known for his consistency. And that alone really has won over the guys in the club year after year, being consistent, showing up, you know, when, when other people don't and have, you know, a lot of people in prison, uh, uh, family relationships can fray. Uh, and, and Frank is that guy who sees them for the people, person that they are today. He meets them on the track for being runners for people, for people who just want to, uh, accomplish a goal. You know, the concept of running a marathon is, is quite literally the subject of the film, but it's also such a metaphor for the the sentences that these men and you you focus particularly on three men uh Markel Taylor, Rashawn Thomas and Tommy Lee Wickend. Three men that are Wickard. Th- th- yes. Mm-hmm. Wickard? Yes. Yes, Tommy. Um Lee. you know all of them when we first meet them are are looking at impossibly long prison sentences for differing reasons and and we'll go into that in just a bit but I was I was really struck by their relationship to time and Mm -hmm. and how that might translate to the training for a marathon and the running of a marathon. They you know, at at what point at what point somebody kind of optimistically talks about, you know, basically, if he if if he keeps his nose clean, he'll get out in 2053. And just, you know, I couldn't even wrap my head around that. And so talk a little bit about that, how, you know, as a filmmaker, you've you've got this visceral metaphor of the marathon with the expanse of time that that these men are looking at. Yeah, the meta the marathon really did provide a great structuring device and metaphor for how these guys approach living life with a life sentence. You know, and I think Rasan did say it best uh, in the film. He says that, you know, sometimes when you're looking at a life sentence or running a, a marathon, it's too overwhelming to think about how much further you have to go. So, you know, you take one step at a time, one mile at a time. And that approach uh, and seeing the resilience of these men uh, was really inspiring. And that is really one of the main reasons why I felt like people needed to see this group of men um, under all odds and incredibly, you know, long sentences in a, in a situation where people could so easily lose hope. Mm-hmm. You know, these are pe- people who haven't lost hope. And I think that that's an important lesson uh, for 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 people to learn and to experience. What was it about these three individuals or their stories or the way they presented to you that made you feel like you wanted to build the film essentially around around their ordeals? So casting the film uh, was a very interesting process Um, on the very first day when I went into San Quentin was for a half marathon event to observe. I was um, introduced to Markel Taylor from Frank, Coach Frank. 
simply because he's the fastest runner. Mm -hmm. He broke all the club records. They call him the gazelle. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a high school track star. uh, uh, And um, so I knew because he was kind of the, you know, the star of the club, I knew that I would have to focus on him no matter what, you know. Um, However, what I was uh, delighted and surprised by was, you know, how he came off on, uh, on camera a- mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the, uh, depth of emotion that he, that he also shared. So I knew I was going to cast him, um, Rasan Thomas. Uh, I also met him on that first day and he was working as a San Quentin newspaper reporter. He was a sports reporter uh, covering the marathon event. And I just remember our first conversation, he made me laugh. And these thoughts went through my head like, you know, this guy is making me laugh and we're inside a prison yard. Like it seemed very incongruous to me, that experience of laughing inside prison when it seems that things are only supposed to be serious. <laughs> you know. Um, and I was kind of surprised and almost disappointed at myself for having that thought as if like people stop being themselves inside prison. Mm -hmm. And I think that I had, you know, because of my friend who was wrongfully accused, I think I sort of separated him as a special case to, you know, compared to, uh, you know, the rest of the guys that I met. So, you know, Rasan was a writer, has uh, his head wrapped around um, issues of mass incarceration uh, really well. I read a lot of his um, writings online and just thought that he could inject some levity into what is a very serious situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just what, yeah, I wanted to work with him as well. And, and each of the three men go into pretty minute detail around the circumstances of essentially what led to either the mistake or the series of mistakes that they made. And there's, you know, there's correlation to uh, the conditions of of how they were raised, what they were exposed to, et cetera. But I didn't detect any any instance at all of blaming anybody else for choices that they made. Uh, And as I said, they're very forthcoming. Um, I'm curious um, how you went about building trust and building credibility to the point where you got them to be so revealing? Well, one, I want to start off with that is what true rehabilitation looks like Mm -hmm. when uh, people can have insight into the circumstances that led them into prison. I didn't necessarily know that in some ways they would be so, so open and so revealing. However, before that, um, I did spend quite a bit of time inside the prison getting to know them. Um, and I think that they understood that I was looking to get the whole of their story. You know, a lot of people and news reporters, et cetera, go into the prison for like an hour, mm-hmm. you know, ex- extract these stories and and go on their merry way. Um, I think that because I spent a lot of time and it took me a lot of time to get in there in the first place. Um, You know, I think that that commitment showed them that um, I was serious about getting the totality of their story and understanding what really led them to the, you know, metaphorical starting line at San Quentin. 
Yeah. And anybody who uh, who works in the documentary film world knows about the challenges of setting up a location shoot and getting the right permissions and so forth. And then, you know, try doing that at a level four maximum security prison. Talk to me really just a little bit about that. First of all, did you feel any particular concerns or challenges as being a female filmmaker in that environment? And uh, and then once you were inside the prison, how did you begin thinking like a filmmaker in the sense that this is where I want to position the camera, uh, you know, in a, in an environment that I imagine has more physical constraints than your, you know, your usual uh, set and setting? Wow, there's a lot to that question. It took about nine months, I guess you could say, on and off to try to get permission to film there. I was looking for, obviously, for multiple entry access over a course of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I regularly work as a in nonfiction TV producing where, you know, you got to bang these episodes out in a couple of days and things like that. I knew that this wasn't this type of situation. So I knew that the type of access that I was requesting was unique. What kind I of just, crew were you in there with? How, how big? It would it? depend for the running events. Um, I had observed that certainly I wanted to present them as the real athletic events that they are, mm-hmm. you know, and give, uh, give the events the respect that they deserve. So I did want to cover it as a real sporting event. So we ultimately, we shot about three major races, although they're you know, combined into that one race. Yeah. One of the highlights was being able to get a big, a big ass jib arm in there. <laughs> I was going to ask about because, that. Uh, I was looking at these because, uh, like, how did she get that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everything that you bring in obviously has to be cleared ahead of time. There's a yeah. lot of clearance issues. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, Getting to know the administration, having them realize what kind of project that I'm doing. I'm not necessarily trying to make the the prison itself look bad. I'm trying to really um, capture these guys in their truth. Um, so for the marathon events or running events, I mean, we we started out, I think, the 10 mile run. We had three cameras um, for the marathon. I think we had like six or seven cameras going, um, you know, at all different positions of the yard, um, different configurations. And we did a lot of, you know, composed type of running shots as well, where, you know, people are looking directly into the lens. Um right. You know, running to me is such a visceral, you know, truly cinematic uh, um, action. And so I did want to use the the mental part of running, uh, try to try to capture that as well as the physical and and thought, you know, obviously the eyes are a window into everyone's soul. So, you know, having the viewer look directly into these men's eyes is something that I wanted to have the viewers experience and, and feel like that they were on the track at San Quentin. Yeah. That's a great series of uh, sequence of shots uh, with the races. It does feel very much like a, like an athletic event and those shots that you were talking about where the, uh, the runner is sort of running at the camera. And then there's a, another great series of shots where the, the runners are to the side of the camera. I don't know if you had a, a steady cam or a, a track set or, or whatever, but that that's a great sequence of shots. I kept thinking of maybe you've never heard of this movie. It was a made for TV movie back in the seventies with a guy named Peter Strauss about a runner in Alcatraz. 
And and uh, I think it was a real a real guy. It might even have been called running. Um, but it was uh, I kept thinking of it when I was when I was watching your when I was watching your film. I will add much, you know, kudos to my DP, Cliff Trayman, yeah. who, you know, he is a very ambidextrous and can, you know, one thing he learned about doing a film about running is that you're going to have to run <laughs> as well. So he did a lot of chasing of these guys, you know, with with his camera. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems like he, he was going to have to run. But as importantly, and maybe even as frequently, he was going to have to stop running because there's a two word phrase that kept coming up yard down. Tell me about what that is and then what that what that means when you're in the midst of shooting. So when you hear a yard down, it means that there's an alarm that goes off inside the prison. It could be for any reason, you know, medical or, you know, a a fight who who actually really knows. But during these, these times, all of the incarcerated population have to get on the ground. um, And then you as an outsider, you stay standing up, you know, they want to be able to separate who is part of the population and and who is not, which is also why you wear different clothing colors. You know, they, there are very strict regulations around what color clothing uh, outsiders can wear, okay. you know, when you come in to separate, easily separate the population. So these guys have to stay down on the ground until they give the all clear sign. This could happen at any time in the marathon. You know, mile 18, when these guys are, you know, not wanting to necessarily get up, you know, again, that it breaks their rhythm. Um, So it's incredibly tough circumstances. So that that happens all the time. Can you can you think of any instance where it was particularly lengthy and not just broke the rhythm of their running, but maybe, you know, interrupted the rhythm of your of what you had hoped to accomplish that day? The Tuesday night before the marathon, you know, we thought that we were going to be doing a lot. You know, we had some moody night stuff. We we ended up getting other stuff, but um, there it was just one alarm after another. <laughs> you know, the, the whole the whole almost the whole entire time. So and there's a there was a reference made toward the end of the film. And, and I think it might have been Rashawn. Oh, R- yes, because Rashawn is not happy with his uh, performance in, in, in the marathon. And he attributes it to really just a lack of training. But he mentioned a three week lockdown at, at, at one point. So if I understand correctly, that means no one's going to the yard at that point. They are in their cells during a lockdown. Um, sometimes, yeah, they're self-fed. You know, mm-hmm. they get and these cells are, you know, four by nine. Right. So there is. Yeah, they will go for lengthy amounts of times in lockdowns. You know, during covid, they were basically locked down almost the entire time. Even things are only getting kind of back to normal at San Quentin this past year. Um, last year, they, they were almost locked down. You know, I was supposed to go and, and visit, um, but then they would be canceled at the last second because of lockdowns that happened. So all told, how many shooting days did you have uh, within San Quentin? 12 days, something like 12, 14 days. What what happened, though, over the course of filming is when I finished principal photography, um, I would continue to go in and run with the club. And mm-hmm. Rasan and I were both very slow runners, so we would end up running at the same pace. 
<laughs> and we get to talking. And um, one day he asked me if I would help mentor him to his dream was to become a film director. And I was looking for other ways to, you know, uh, they have a media center at yeah. the prison. So I became a volunteer at the media center. We ended up uh, producing, I ended up producing a short film for him. It was about actually Tommy Wickard. Uh, I was supported by Sundance and the Marshall Project. It actually just got finished called Friendly Signs. And it was about um, Tommy's wanting to start an ASL class mm -hmm. to serve the um, incoming population of deaf people that were coming into the prison. Um, but over time, what ended up happening is... Um, you know, a, a, a incarcerated crew ended up sort of getting uh, integrated within the production as well. So there were significant portions of the film that were shot with like an all incarcerated crew. All of the music is by currently and formerly incarcerated artists, um, wow. except, except, Woody, except Woody Pack who was a composer I worked with before, who is actually at Berkeley School of Music. He's a professor there. He um, did a lot of the acoustic work for Tommy's, you know, scenes. Um, but the rest of the um, hip hop tracks, um, songs, um, the rest of the score is by Antoine Williams, who was incarcerated when I first met him. And mm -hmm. then over the course of which he got released. And then a lot of those songs uh, were produced by a guy named David Jassy, who all of those, you know, rap tracks were, were produced and recorded inside the prison. As a filmmaker, frankly, just as a person, uh, are you somebody who's comfortable in entering this type of an environment or, or maybe you could talk a little bit about how your comfort level evolved over, you know, the, the shooting days. And then when you were there in a, vol a volunteer capacity and what allowed that comfort level to evolve? The first time I had been in a California state prison was to visit my friend who was wrongfully accused. This was in back in 2002. And that was at Pelican Bay State Prison near the Oregon border, the state's most maximum security prison. And it was downright terrifying. Um, San Quentin actually is really not like that. Um, it is actually um, it has a it has a death row. Uh, although that is completely kind of segregated, it's sort of a prison within a prison. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the most of the um, uh, San Quentin over time actually has evolved into a general population prison and like a level one prison. It's it's not the San Quentin that we know of notorious violence anymore. Yeah. It's uh, because of its location. It's a. Uh, uh, has the most rehabilitative programs in the state of California now, because it's basically in Marin County, just, you know, steps away from San Francisco. Um, so the first time I went into San Quentin, I was, you know, I, I was concerned, <laughs> you know, when you hear those, you know, clanging iron doors and stuff, it's disconcerting. Uh, but I was with the coaches, you know, so yeah, okay. you're in a group, you're not, you know, um, and then as you're walking down into the yard, you know, and the yard is very active. Um, you do feel a little bit like, Hey, what's going on. <laughs> um, but 
honestly, I felt very um, surprisingly okay, you know, and I felt very kind of comfortable, which is why I felt like I had to film this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, you know, of course, you know, you're a volunteer, you're an outsider. So, you know, you're not going to be necessarily put in like a dangerous situation. And the guys actually are very aware that, you know, these programs are very fragile. Right. Right. So of course people are on their best behavior. Um, but you know, over time as a volunteer, I mean, I've gone into San Quentin in the media center and have spent like 14 hours, you know, straight 12 hours straight in the prison because we were editing inside the prison. That's, that's remarkable. Is, is it even possible to ever be so involved in what you're doing that you forget you're in a prison or are, are you, yeah. pretty much, is it? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm constantly, you know, um, learning stuff as a storyteller, right. You know, it's, it's fascinating, you know, cause you're entering a world, um, that is, uh, cut off from the rest of society. I mean, that's the point of prison is to be cut off, you know, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I've learned so much, from people that are there. Yeah. As I, as I mentioned earlier, each of the three, you know, main uh, protagonists of the film, if I can call them that, you know, they go into detail about uh, the, the mistakes that they made, the pain that they caused within their family and to the, their, the victims and their victims family. And then they were, what I found really interesting was how the actual number of years that they get sentenced um, how that is put together. There's there's the there's the offense. There's the nature of the offense, and the, and then there are all these other particulars. Was there a weapon involved? You know, how was the weapon used, etc. So you know, you the original offense may be a five year crime, but when you tack on all the additionals, you're looking at 50, 60 years, or you know, something of that nature. And there's a number of references to, you know, uh, people preparing to go uh, to the parole board and to essentially fix their psychology to prepare that you're, you're not going to it's not going to be a one and done. You're going to have to go before them multiple times. And what kind of an insight into their mindset were you able to gather so that they didn't lose hope and and in losing hope, give up on the idea of their own rehabilitation? Well, one, um, what the kind of sentencing that you're talking about is called enhancements. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you use if you you know, are charged with murder and you use a gun, say in the state of California, you could get up to an additional 25 years to life for the use of a gun, as opposed to, you know, a knife. (laughs) Um, So these things are called mandatory minimum sentencing, which is just mandated by the California state legislator. A lot of that power was taken out of the judge's discretion. You know, judges used to hold a lot of um, power power to sentence. So, you know, that is why since that power was taken away, that is why we're seeing such long, lengthy, you know, sentences across the United States, actually. So, you know, um, to to demonstrate to um, to be found suitable for parole, uh, people have to demonstrate personal transformation 
and insight into their crimes. Um, the way that most people are able to do that is by participation in self-help groups, um, you know, writing statements, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when you are in a prison that is complete, you know, in a remote place that doesn't have access to programs, it's, it can be very difficult to prove personal transformation. So mm -hmm. there in, in itself, you know, also is a, you know, is a, is a kind of a cruel loop on this whole thing as well. Um, I am very happy to share that Rasan Thomas was found suitable for parole. He received a commutation and he was released in February of this past year. I was going to ask you that because the film he references that out. he would be eligible. Yes. He is now out. Okay. Wow. Yes. So <laughs> I, I, you and I were speaking uh, before we started recording about, you know, spoilers and, you know, I want to entice people to see the film. I don't necessarily think it's a huge spoiler to say that, you know, one of the great things about the film is there's so, you, there are success stories to trumpet and in yes. the aggregate, uh, this thousand mile club, since it's been established, uh, 45 members of the Thousand Mile Club have been granted parole and zero have reoffended. That's a very impressive statistic. Yes. When you compare it to the national average of, for recidivism, which is 67 wow. percent, uh, what the Thousand Mile Club and the, their community, uh, it's astounding. You know, and this is really due to, um, of course, the hard work has been done by these men who have worked on, who, you know, chosen to work on themselves to better themselves and make a commitment to, um, yeah, to rehabilitate themselves. Um, but the beauty of the Thousand Mile Club, which I'll add, is that it truly is a community that goes beyond uh, the politics of prison segregation. And a lot of these coaches and the community outside, they provide um, continuity for these men who have, you know, been inside and then as they're paroling. Mm -hmm. So we just actually, the Thousand Mile Club welcomed a, a recent new parolee just uh, at the top of, at the end, you know, end of May. And, oh, wow. you know, hopefully with this film, uh, we are trying to uh, um, get Tommy get Tommy Wickard out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You so know, you, commutation you, you, is sitting on the governor's desk right now. And um, at the end of eight, at the end of August, there will be a screening uh, that uh, former California state Senator Mark Leno and uh, the current mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg, are presenting this film to the California state legislators, um, Governor Newsom and California Department of Corrections to uh, to highlight the power of rehabilitation and hopefully to get more programs and more funding uh, approved in the state. I know that not long ago, your film won the uh, Audience Choice Award at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. I, I'm wondering either in screenings or focus groups or just, you know, being a fly on the wall uh, when the when the film is being shown. Uh, have you encountered any sort of um, evolution in people's thinking, viewers thinking uh, around the subjects of incarceration and and rehabilitation and what's possible and what isn't? Absolutely, Michael. 
People, so many people when the film is done and a lot of times for these Q&As, we are able to bring Markel Taylor there. You can see and feel a real tangible shift in the room and people are very excited to meet him. And I've had many people say to me that they never thought about these issues ever before or, um, you know, did not. You know, in popular culture right now, too, true crime is so popular, you know, and I've worked in the genre, you know, myself, you know, um, and we're not really doing a service. It's really a disservice to ourselves by really not recognizing the people for who they are, um, you know, these people, millions of people in our country who are currently behind bars or who have been in prison before, you know, um, when you look at multi-generational incarceration, I mean, these are real issues. And most of the, most of the people that I've met inside are there because of a few reasons. One, they did not have family support, um, no mentorship, lack of access to education, and of course, systemic poverty and addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas you could say people who, you know, these are society's failures, right? They are our failures of why they are actually in there as well. It's our responsibility too, to that degree. Whereas we can say people who are successful, you know, have the opposite experience. They usually do have mentorship. They do have access to education, some kind of family support or support structure, you know, and if they um, don't have um, financial means are somehow able to come across financial means um, and get a, get help if they can for their addictions. Um, so, you know, we're looking and I do want to add that Almost the statistics are about 90 percent of the people in prison do eventually find their way out. Um, A lot of times, even with incredibly long sentences, particularly I'm talking about in the state of California, too. There are a number of criminal justice reform, sentencing reform measures that do allow for people to, you know, perhaps get early parole grant grant uh, granting. However, you know. For the 90 percent of the people that get out, then, you know, how do we as a society want them to leave prison? You know, I think that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. You know, do we want them to um, uh, be better people, you know, when they come out? Um, You know, how are our prisons, uh, you know, uh, servicing or not servicing that? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the in the three the three men that you focus on, each has uh, their own very uh, unique and compelling story around, again, as I said, you know, c- coming to an honest assessment of the choices that they made, the ramifications of those choices and the commitment to uh, rebuilding themselves, essentially recreating themselves, you know, and it's not all it's not all a straight line. And they they acknowledge that. And even Markel, who Again, bit of a spoiler. We do see him granted release and he's just taken in by these coaches. Essentially, there's this there's this really touching scene where they're going to uh, lunch, I assume. Uh, and and you can just tell how foreign an experience that has become for Markel. And the, the fact that they were there to you know guide him every step of the way. What type of a relationship has been maintained 
post-incarceration between the 1,000-mile club members and these volunteer coaches? Uh, Markel is successfully living in Marin County, actually. Um, he is now the uh, president, or he not not president, he is on the board of uh, the running organization, Tamalpa Runners, which is where a lot of the coaches are, Frank, you know, was formerly a president of. Mm-hmm. So he's very active, remains very active and engaged with um, especially the Fitzpatrick's, Diana and Tim Fitzpatrick, who are both coaches um, in the club. Um, but, you know, he struggles. You know, he is a cashier at a supermarket. Um, and of course, you know, he still struggles like a lot of formerly incarcerated people, um, you know, with uh, opportunities. Uh, but he is doing well. He is participating and he's about to run the um, San Francisco in, in the San Francisco Marathon. He just got back on from his first international trip, uh, Cork City Marathon in Ireland. Um, and, um, you know, is uh, very active in the community. You know, most of the guys who have been released that I know are great examples of people who are service, who remain in service to the communities. Um, and I think that that's really something that they've learned. Um, so, uh, you know, Troy Dunmore is now like a substance abuse counselor. Others are, you know, a part in, uh, take part in like restorative justice, a nonprofit, stuff like that. So it's, um, they're, they're useful, uh, law abiding citizens, uh, in our communities. Yeah. And Mar- Markel is not just sort of participating in the, in these marathons. I mean, he's, he's cranking out super impressive times three, uh, six weeks after being granted parole, he runs the Boston marathon. He finishes the Boston marathon in three hours and three minutes. Amazing. <laughs> and I will add last year, he ran it again and did it in 252. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, yeah. But I will also add that morning of the of the Boston Marathon that we filmed. He might have done better, really, but what happened that morning, there was a fire alarm that went off in the lobby oh, no. <laughs> of our hotel. Oh, no. And so we all, you know, were completely discombobulated. <laughs> That morning, getting to the starting line, you know, we had to like run up 18 flights of stairs to get our gear, come down with like all this fire alarm. It was crazy. So the fact that he managed to do it, you know, in that amount of time was astounding. Absolutely. Well, the film is 26.2 to life. Uh, I know it's made the rounds in a lot of in the festival circuit. It will be featured at the Woods Hole Film Festival later in the summer. And September is going to be big for you. And tell us why. Yes. So September 22nd, we are uh, the film will be in select theaters in L.A., New York, um, the Bay Area, and we are hoping Boston, and there could be a couple of more cities as well. September 29th to October 1st, there will be a 48-hour window for a nationwide virtual premiere. People can keep posted on our website, sanquentinmarathon.com, for ticketing and details as of late July. 
And then um, please do follow us on social media. We are on Instagram at SQ Marathon and then on Facebook at 26.2 to Life. So we post all of our screenings and all, all of our distribution information there. That's fantastic. And I will be sure that all of that information is in the program notes for this particular podcast. And as we promote the podcast through the social media channels of Filmmakers Collaborative also. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today, Christine. And and thank you for this for this film. It was super enlightening and and inspirational in a way that you don't think a film set in a prison might be inspirational. But this truly was. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we hear that a lot, that it's surprisingly inspirational (laughs) for being in a prison. Yeah. And I was surprisingly inspired as well, you know, and I I think that really comes down to, again, I want to bring it back down to the coach, Frank Rona. This is one man who, through his passion for running, was able to create a community in a place that we think of as immovable, as entrenched. You know, this really, to me, showed the power that one person can truly make. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're a remarkable individual. Well, thank you again, Christine Yu. And again, the film is 26.2 to life. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Michael. 